Hey there, welcome back to another episode of Uncovering Unexplained Mysteries. Now, as you can hear, there is a definite difference with this particular episode, uh, not only uh, with the release date, uh, but also with the fact that it's just me, uh, Mike, one half of the dynamic duo. Josh is not here, uh, he's dealing with... Uh, some personal, uh, issues right now, uh, so, um, he's just taking some time off, he'll be back, hopefully, within, uh, another week, you know, hopefully he'll be back for the next, uh, episode, so he'll be back before you know it, all I can say is, I definitely already miss him, I miss the banter that we have with each other, I, I miss the, the the witty uh, retorts and remarks and um, it just isn't the same. It just is not the same without without him. It's been a collaboration that's been a joy and an absolute blessing. To be perfectly honest, uh, this podcast would not be anywhere near the height or the uh, quality that it that it is currently without Josh and his just wonderful ability to bounce off of me and to also, uh, offer so much to the podcast. So, um, anyway, I'm going to try to do the best I possibly can. Uh, I got the dad jokes on deck um, I'm nowhere near as funny as Josh, so keep that in mind, folks. Um, he has a much better sense of humor than me, and I'll even, I'll, I'll, I'll admit it. I'll, I'm fine with admitting it. I'd rather be honest than lie. And, um, this'll be a bit awkward, <laughs> because it's, uh, uncharted territory for me. So, bear with me here, and, uh... Without further ado, let's get started. I'm going to be talking about three different cases from Unsolved Mysteries for this uh, particular episode. Uh, interestingly enough, all three cases are from from Season 4. I've been uh, watching Season 4 on Amazon Prime, and all three of these cases are from various different episodes I've seen from that particular season. So, um, let's get started with the strange case of the siblings of Jim Baumgarten. Now, this one I wanted to talk about because it's really a fascinating case of missing twins, but then again, there might be this other thing going on that it might not be what it seems. And there might be some kind of cover-up going on. Nothing super serious. Like, there's no murder involved here or a robbery or, or anything like that. It's just a very surreal, uh, strange case. Uh, there are different factors to it that really make me go, huh? that really do make me scratch my head and wonder what is the whole truth behind all of this. So, uh, friends and family of Jim Baumgarten claim that they have seen him in several places that he was never actually at. The first occurrence involved Jim's brother-in-law, Rick Holder. 
Rick was at a company softball game in Rockford, Illinois, in 1984 when he saw a man who he thought was Jim pitching for the opposing team. After the game was over, he went up to the man and tried to talk to him, but the man was confused and left. And the reenactment does a really great job capturing this surreal moment of a friend of Jim's thinking he sees Jim at the softball game and he saw him earlier. So he's like, why is he here? And he, he talks to him. He, he says, calls him by his first name. I'm like, hey, Jim, how you doing? Uh, nice to see you here. I didn't know you were pitching for the softball team. And the guy looks at him like, what? What are you talking about? Looks at him like he's crazy, and then is like, I don't know. And then they they recapture that really well for for the entire uh, reenactment. They also did a really good job. Like they casted two identical twins. Uh, they really were identical, and then just the whole craziness of the whole thing. Like knowing that there is some identical twin who looks exactly like you, who's living in the same town as you, and People you know swear to God that they've seen you in places that you were not at or you go to the same place that they thought they saw you right after the person was the other person was there. I mean, it's just it's the kind of stuff that honestly is hard to believe. It's almost too good, too outlandish, too crazy, too surreal to be true. And that might actually be the case. So after the game was over, he went up to the man and tried to talk to him, but the man was confused and left. Five years later, and just a few miles away, Jim's father, Ernie, was leaving his doctor's office when he thought he saw Jim in the parking lot. Ernie called for his son, but he received no response from the man. After hearing these stories, Jim remembered something that had happened to him when he was a child. When he was 11 and visiting his grandparents in Rochelle, Illinois, several neighborhood kids began to talk to him, calling him Billy. Jim told the other kids that his name wasn't Billy, but they were also confused. He didn't think much of the incident until years later, when his brother-in-law and father told him about his double. Now, the reenactment shows the, this uh, particular exchange, and it's honestly pretty funny, because... For some reason, uh, he remembers that when he was a kid, when these other kids came up to him and called him Billy and asked him to play basketball, he was very adamant about not playing basketball unless they called him by his real name. He was like, I'm not Billy, and I'm not going to play basketball with you if you keep calling me Billy. <laughs> it was one of those just like... I'm not Billy. I'm not going to play basketball with you if you keep calling me Billy. Uh, it, it's just, it was just a very awkward exchange. I think the, the writing for this particular reenactment, uh, the, the writer had the day off, so they had somebody else fill in who was just like a temp or something, or they just did it on the fly. I don't know. It just sounded very unnatural. But his whole recollection of what happened was, was pretty unnatural. So... Often in Rockford, people would introduce themselves to Jim in an unusually friendly way, as if they had known him. And on Christmas Day 1991, Shirley Hurling, a convenience store worker, served a customer that she assumed was Jim. A few minutes later, Jim and his wife Cindy walked in. Shirley asked Jim if he had forgotten something, but he told her that this was the first time that he had been there that day. Three, three weeks later, Cindy was visiting Jim's grandmother, Sophie, when she mentioned Jim's strange encounters with his apparent double. Jim's father, Ernie, had died a few weeks earlier and had told Sophie a secret that she finally revealed. 
Jim had a twin brother. The plot thickens. Jim had always known that he was adopted, but he had no idea that he actually had a twin. I mean, this is just nuts. Like, can you imagine this? Can you imagine this scenario playing out in your own life? You're, you're just going about your business for years. All of a sudden, people are saying that they've seen you at places that you don't remember going to. And then you hear this bombshell that there is another one of you out there. Um, it's almost like the makings of a Stephen King novel or something or some kind of... Uh, horror film where this identical twin that you never knew about for years eventually shows up in your small town and starts taking over your life. Uh, it's just, it is just, it is so strange it, and surreal is the perfect way to sum it up. It is such a surreal thing. Jim began searching for his birth family. He obtained a family history from the adoption agency, however, no names were used. The document did mention that Jim's birth mother had a nephew that had drowned at age 14. Jim spent hours searching through old newspapers at the library before he found a story about his birth cousin, his birth cousin's drowning in 1945. His birth mother's family name was Hieronymus. Through the phone book, Jim located a woman by that name. She lived just 20 miles away. The woman was Myrtle Hieronymus, and she identified herself as Jim's aunt, his birth mother's sister. Myrtle showed a photograph of Jim's birth mother, Hazel. He learned that she had died three years earlier. So yeah, she showed him a photograph, and then she told him that she had died three years earlier. Myrtle told Jim that Hazel had cut herself off from the family year years earlier, and that they had known nothing about the birth of Jim and his twin. However, Myrtle did not know... Well, actually, Myrtle did know that Hazel had a daughter born in 1945. <clears throat> Jim now wants to find his half-sister and twin brother. Now, this is an unresolved case because Jim was reunited with his sister Judy soon after the broadcast, but never was able to locate his twin brother. And sadly, Jim died a year later after the episode broadcast uh, in 1992, but his sister and other family members are still searching for the twin. They believe that Jim's brother's name is Billy, and that he was born in the Salvation County Hospital in Cook County, Illinois, on March 29, 1947, and was adopted by a family in Rochelle, Illinois. So, what makes uh, things even more intriguing about this is that I went and did some extra research I checked out some other uh, blogs and uh, other uh, forums and stuff like that and came across some info that was definitely worth noting that there is a possibility that this twin is still living in uh, the local area, still living in the same place that he was for years. He just does not want to be identified. He does not want to discover or uh, have any sort of acquaintance with his birth family. He just doesn't, I, I, apparently he just wants to not go into all of that. He wants to remain anonymous. He wants to remain uh, separate from this family and from this whole situation, which I find rather intriguing. I wonder why. 
So that just that just that just honestly creates even more questions in my head. Like, why does he want to be separated from his family? Why does he not want to be associated with them at all? Why was there something more to this whole thing? I don't know. No one knows. Uh, all I know is that it was a pretty intriguing and entertaining segment that I definitely wanted to talk about because I was like this is definitely something that uh, is a case uh, that you don't see every day you you don't see this every day you don't hear people talk about an identical twin that they had no idea existed I've also heard some things through the same sources I looked at that maybe Jim kind of made this up that none of this was actually true. He was just doing it for attention and wanted to get on Unsolved Mysteries. I don't know. Um, honestly, it's kind of a crazy thing to do. It's, it's kind of like, why would you make that up? Like, why? Why would you waste Robert Stack's time with with a bullshit identical twin story? But um, you never know. I mean, you had that case of uh, the on-air confessions of these... Uh, people who were trying to confess to these crimes that on the radio that tied into another crime that was featured on the show, and then you find out later that it was all a prank. So, I guess that isn't something that is totally unheard of on the show. I mean, the first ever UFO case was uh, the Gulf Breeze UFO case, and that was a giant hoax. So, yeah. Um, but... It's not something that is totally unlikely, but I, I have my doubts. I personally think there is an identical twin. He just didn't want to have any part with his family, and that's why he was never found or discovered or why he never reunited with his brother and his brother's family. So, um, <clears throat> excuse me. Apparently, uh, doing the podcast solo is doing murder on my voice. So, speaking of murder, I have a murder case I'm going to talk about later, but I'll save that for last. It's a very uh, juicy meatball uh, uh, of a particular uh, case, to borrow a term that Josh has used before. So... The next case I want to talk about, though, is the mysterious and weird case of Tyler, who is a man who ended up with amnesia. Now, this particular episode where you have Tyler and his case of amnesia, it has some really intense imagery in it, like... The sequence that shows him in the hospital where he's on a gurney and he's just the actor. The actor's doing a phenomenal job uh, in this particular sequence as well. And he's he's in this gurney and he's just flipping out. He's just freaking out. He's just all like, oh my God, oh my God, what am I going to do? Uh, uh, like, who is, where am I? What's going on? What's going on? Uh? And I'm doing a bad job of it because I'm not as good of an actor as this guy. But... It's a really, really well done sequence uh, from the way it's shot because it's shot in overhead perspective as if 
something up above is peering down at him. It's almost the kind of shot you'd see in like an alien abduction sequence. It's that harrowing. So Tyler is a young man who was found wandering through the desert 30 miles outside of Las Vegas, Nevada on January 28th, 1991. He wore three layers of clothing, carried no identification, and said he had been there for at least three days. Upon his discovery, he was rushed to the hospital and treated for exposure and dehydration. While there, he was diagnosed with psychogenic amnesia, a form caused by emotional trauma. The staff christened him Tyler and enrolled him in a state program to provide him with housing employment. No missing person reports matched his description, and his fingerprints weren't on record anywhere. Doctors found only two clues to his past life, evidence of hairline fractures on the knuckles of both hands and what they believed to be a gunshot wound on his right thigh. While talking with a fellow patient who had lived in San Diego, California, he got the odd feeling that he had lived there too. After being put under hypnosis, he began to remember a lot about his, his life and a lot about the beaches and military bases in San Diego. As time went on, more and more of his passabilities began to come back. And some of these passabilities were just crazy. Like, he remembered how to fly a plane. He remembered how to uh, put together uh, uh, really complicated equipment uh, for uh, the military. He remembered martial arts. He remembered all of these crazy things. Apparently, uh, Tyler, whoever he was, whoever he is, was a really intelligent guy who knew a lot of different skills. So yeah, he, he had knowledge about scuba diving, martial arts, computer programming, and military aircraft. Uh, though much of his knowledge suggested a military past, no record of anyone matching his description could be found by them. I just find the amnesia cases very interesting. Um, there are quite a few of them on the show and they always have this uh, very intriguing aura about them. You're just wondering why did this particular person get amnesia? Who is this person? And then again, yeah, there, amnesia is used as a meme isn't the right word, but it's definitely a trope. Trope is the right word. Amnesia is a trope on Unsolved Mysteries where you'll have grieving parents or grieving uh, family members or uh, spouses or friends come up with uh, excuses or not necessarily excuses, but reasonings why their loved one went missing and never came back. They, they cling on to the hope that they might still be alive by having these theories of they're just wandering around Mexico uh, with amnesia, not knowing who they are. And most of the time, it's, it's, it's a bunch of BS. It's a bunch of bullshit. They're dead. They're, the body hasn't been found yet or it gets found later. But there are legitimate cases of amnesia. Amnesia is not just something that is just made up by... Uh, people who are featured on the show to try to cope with uh, the loss of a loved one uh, or, or try to cling on to the hope that their loved one is still alive. Amnesia actually is a real thing. But what makes this case even more intriguing is that 
there seems to be evidence that suggests that he might not have actually had amnesia or, or that he uh, was honestly uh, making it up so he could uh, avoid getting uh, thrown in jail. So um, that's definitely an, an, an interesting development in the case. Uh, but there's also some other evidence that suggests that he might actually be amnesia. He might actually have amnesia, especially with his uh, reactions and the way that he is behaving around his mother when he meets up with her later because it actually was solved because before this case aired in Las Vegas a man contacted the telecenter and said that he was his father his real name is Arthur Paul Beal although he goes by Paul he was married had two children and lived in Boise Idaho before losing his memory a short time after contacting his mother and stepfather Las Vegas police showed up at his apartment and arrested him for grand larceny he was wanted in Boise for stealing a shipment of frozen food from a food supply company that he worked as a salesman for. On January 5th, 1991, he went to Las Vegas to sell the food, but three weeks later on January 25th, he and the food showed up in Boulder City. He was questioned by police and told about the potential charges against him if, he w if it wasn't returned to Boise. He said he would head there immediately, but three days later he was discovered wandering aimlessly in the desert. Some believe he never had amnesia, but faked it in order to avoid prosecution. And the some that believe that are the police, a lot of the people who were involved with the case. And it definitely is something that does raise suspicion. Uh, the time frame definitely does line up, and it lines up a little bit too tight for this to just be a coincidence. Uh, he was on the run, there was a warrant for his arrest... For stealing a shipment of frozen food he ends up disappearing uh he wanders around the desert and is found later three days later after the police questioned him and told him that there would be potential charges against him if he didn't return the food to boise but then he was discovered wandering around the desert so yeah it kind of does it definitely does uh, raise some red flags, for sure. Paul's mother, Lynn, traveled to Las Vegas to post bail for him. They were reunited, although he claimed that he could not remember her. And they show the footage, and it's genuinely heartbreaking, and it seems like he's not making it up. I mean, if he didn't have amnesia, he's a damn good actor. That's all I have to say. Um... But then again, I mean, there's a lot of cases where people, they do that. They manage to be super manipulative. They manage to be able to pull that crazy stunt off. And it's I don't blame prosecutors and I don't blame the police for thinking that he might have faked it. Because it seems like that does tie into the whole frozen food stealing thing and all of that. So they were reunited. He claimed that he could not remember her. And after returning to Boise, he spent 90 days in jail for petty theft. His criminal case is now closed. According to relatives and associates of his, he suffered a heart attack in November 2007, leaving him in a minimally conscious state. Whether his amnesia was genuine or faked will possibly never be determined. And it's kind of ironic that if it, if it was faked, that he ended up kind of in an amnesiac state after his heart attack because he's minimally conscious. So 
if he did fake it, he ultimately did have some sort of uh, feelings of amnesia uh, with the whole minimal uh, conscious state thing that happened later in his life. But if he was actually suffering from amnesia, this makes it even more shitty. Like, this makes it even worse. He We've dealt with amnesia. Uh, there were all these doubts about whether or not he was faking it and it was for real. And then he has a heart attack and now he's in this minimally conscious state. So he already had amnesia or has amnesia. And now because of the heart attack, he's even he's in an even less conscious state than he was when he had amnesia. I mean, either way, it sucks for him. It really does. Um, I, I, I feel for Paul regardless of whether or not he was guilty of the crime of stealing frozen food. Um, this is a, a fate that honestly is something that I don't wish upon anybody. Amnesia is something that definitely worries me. And uh, the, definitely the potential of it. Uh, in essence, it's an identity death. And it's one of those things that really is quite scary. I wouldn't say that I'm terrified of it or I lie awake at night fearing that amnesia will get me. But it is something that if it did happen to me, it would be really, really terrible. Because a lot of your memories and a lot of who you are and a lot of your personality and everything that makes you you is through your experiences, through your interactions with other people. And if you can't remember any of that, then in essence, you die, but your body is still alive. And that's just horrible. That's horrifying. I don't know about you. Um, in essence, the person that you were no longer exists. And you just have to cope with the fact that you're someone else who now has to build these relationships with uh, people who you were really close with. And those relationships will more than likely not be the same or as close as they once were. It's just a very harrowing thing to think about. And and, and it's just something that I, I don't think should be taken lightly. Um, because I, I know there are some, some things out there that try to turn amnesia into just some kind of like, oh, it's just a cheap joke or something, or, or, uh, or, or, uh, cop out for some kind of plot point or story point or something and the thing is there's a lot of people who have amnesia who don't don't remember they do not have that moment where they get their memories back they just remain in this state of altered consciousness where they are just going about life living but living in a body and in uh, scenarios and situations that they're not familiar with at all. And 
even over time as they continue to stay with their loved ones or continue to try to rebuild what was their life it, it just is never going to be the same and they have to live with that crushing realization every day when they look at pictures uh, of themselves when they were kids or, or a picture of them with their wife or, or, or their husband and they look at it and, and, see, and just cannot connect with that image. They look at it and are like, I don't know who that person is. I see this person in the mirror, but I don't know who I am. That's, that's just awful. I mean, that's, I mean, it just leaves you speechless thinking about it. I mean, think about it. Uh, if you ended up in that situation in your life right now, that's, in essence, in some ways, worse than death. I mean, that's a discussion for you, for you folks. Uh, would you rather die or would you rather live with amnesia? I don't know. I mean, it's a tough, it's a tough choice either way. Uh, and, 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 and when it comes to either option, there's st still a death. I mean, if you, you have temporary amnesia and you manage to get out of it and you just have uh, some chunks of your memory missing, uh, that's something that I, I could live with. And I, I know a lot of people could live with. It'd be very unfortunate and, and something I don't wish upon anybody, but if your whole life just disappears in the thin air and you're still walking this earth, that's, that is just, there's no words, really. There's no words to express how truly distressing that concept is. So, um, I don't know what else to say about, uh, Tyler, uh, about, uh, Paul, except, um, I believe it's Paul. It's actually Arthur, but he goes by Paul. So I was right. So I don't know what else to say about Paul, uh, except I wish him well. So speaking of fucked up, uh, or fuck ups. Uh, I, I got ahead of myself there because uh, this is one fucked up case and it's about one fucked up uh, person, uh, one fucked up uh, criminal and murderer and uh, a really piss poor excuse for a human being. And his name is Joe Maloney. And uh, he's definitely uh, a guy who... I, I, I mean... This guy is scum, pure scum. Uh, I, 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 I know I shouldn't speak ill of other people, but people like this, I'm sorry. They deserve it. They deserve all the ill. They deserve all the ill and ire that they get. And then some. I'm not even going to say that this guy is, is baloney because that's putting it way too lightly. I mean, baloney is something you like, oh, what a bunch of baloney. Like, this guy, uh, he's not he's not lunch meat, okay? He's not on uh, questionable lunch meat territory. Like, 
that this guy is is right up there with with the biggest piles of shit. So he's a man who poisoned his wife and has been a fugitive for over 25 years, and he is still on the run. This scumbag is still out there. In March of 1967, after five years of emotional and physical abuse, 27-year-old June Maloney of Rochester, New York, finally walked out on her husband, Joe Maloney. Joe and June agreed to an informal separation. June took custody of their two young children, and Joe was allowed to visit whenever he wanted. Family friend Neil Dunkelberg remembers their relationship problems. June confided in me that Joe had roughed her up a couple of times. She said that he didn't hit her, she wasn't bruised, but he wasn't above jumping around, hollering and yelling and looking very dangerous, and perhaps grabbing a hold of you and shaking you. Several weeks after June moved out, Joe paid Neil Dunkelberg a visit. Neil experimented with chemistry as a hobby and had a lab in the basement of his mother's home. And in the reenactment, it just... It looks like something out of a mad scientist lab. It looks like something straight out of some B-movie from the 50s or something. I have expect to see one of those uh, giant electro-globe things in the background. Uh, to see uh, one of the guys... Uh, you can see Joe show up and be like, It's alive! Um, this is one of those things like you see like brains and jars. It is it is totally like some B movie mad science lab, complete with all the different beakers with different colored liquids and dry ice, <laughs> and, and and the tubes that are that are all uh, swirly and stuff. You know, try to make it look fancy. It's, you could tell that Unsolved Mysteries, like, they didn't have a whole lot of money to create this lab, but they they gave it their best shot, and what they did was glorious, though. It's glorious. This whole segment has this sort of horror vibe to it anyway, because you have this mad science, this mad scientist lab, and then later in the, in the segment, I'll, I, I want to talk about, I'll talk about it later, but there's a particular shot that looks straight out of a horror movie. And this had to be intentional. Like the cinematographer or the director was a big horror fan. It was like, this is my opportunity to uh, throw in some horror shit. This is my opportunity to show my horror roots. This guy's a horrible piece of shit. I'm going to make this segment look like a horror movie. So Joe came to Neil with an unusual request. He told, he told me that there was a dog who was continuously tipping over his garbage cans and giving him fits, and he would like to poison the dog. Great. So this, this shows you what type of horrible, absolutely unsympathetic, atrocious person Joe Maloney is. He's not only willing to, he's willing to poison everything and anybody. Poison the dog. The dog's tipping over the garbage cans and it's upsetting him, so he's gonna kill the dog. He didn't think he probably didn't think twice about it either. He's like, I'm gonna go over to my neighbors who has a science lab, I'm gonna ask him for some poison to kill that damn dog. Neil continues, he says, but he was a little shaky about doing this because it belonged to a policeman that lived in lived in the neighborhood. <laughs> Yeah, probably not the best idea. So it shows you that Joe is 
still pretty smart. He's still he's still pretty intelligent. He's intelligent enough to not go that far. You know, the dog's annoying. He doesn't like the fact that the dog's tipping over his trash cans. He'd kill the dog if he had the opportunity. He'd definitely poison it. But it's a policeman's dog, so he doesn't want to arouse any suspicion. But he'll kill his wife. He'll poison his wife. <laughs> but he'll be like, the dog, uh, I'll let the dog live. Because it, it belongs to a cop. I don't want to mess it around with any cops. Explains why he's still out there. Because he definitely seems to be a guy who seems to be one step ahead of everybody. And it's not just this particular instance. It continues as his saga goes on. So, Joe showed interest in one particular chemical. A clear liquid which is odorless, tasteless, and lethal. And Neil Dunkelberg is quoted again here. Immediately afterward, I started thinking, why did he want to know that? And I got cautious. I went up and I double-locked the side door that led into my laboratory and I informed the members of my family that no one was to go into my lab. First off, I have, I have to say this. Why do you have extremely hazardous chemicals in your house? Like, why, why, do, you, why do you have this science lab in, in your basement to begin with? Like, nobody ever, he didn't really ever explain it. Uh, Neil Dunkelberg never explained to the camera or anything. and never made any explanation for why he has this science lab in his basement. What was he doing down there? Why do you need all these chemicals? For all I know, he could have been trying to do some uh, mad scientist experiments, trying to bring the dead to life. I don't know. You don't know. He has a lab in his basement. Who has a lab in their basement? I don't know of a single person that has a lab in their basement. This is shit that's like straight out of a weird science magazine. So, he tells people that his family that no one's to go into his basement lab. And he told everyone to keep uh, everybody out and especially to keep Joe out. Unfortunately, though, it didn't work because his younger sister was at home a week or two later and Joe showed up at the house and sweet talked her into letting him into his laboratory because he had to sterilize some instruments. Apparently, his sister is really easily manipulated because that was way too easy. Two weeks later, June arrived at Joe Maloney's house for their son's fifth birthday party. He offered her a drink and she stayed for about two hours. While at the party, June phoned her friend Wanda Mordenga. And Wanda is quoted here. During the time that she was at Joe's for the party, she had called up and she was kind of wound up, different than when she left. And I had asked her, June, how many drinks did you have? And she said, Wanda, I only had two. She went home for which she went home to her apartment, and a little while later I went over to check on her. I asked her if she wanted me to stay with her. She said it was not necessary. She didn't feel quite well and she was going to go to bed. The next morning, Wanda was surprised to find Joe and a doctor in the hall outside of June's apartment. We were in the bedroom talking, and she didn't want me to leave her alone with Joe. She wanted me to stay with her. She was quite definite, so I did. June told Wanda the doctor thought it was food poisoning, but June thought it was something else. According to Wanda, all of a sudden, June stopped talking, and it was like, I would almost have to say, a fear look in her eyes. And I looked over... And Joe was standing in the doorway. That's definitely something to be fearful of. The next day, June lapsed into a coma and was immediately hospitalized. Despite a series of tests, 
doctors found no cure for her rapid decline. Joe Maloney seemed unconcerned about his wife's condition. He suggested that she might not have tried to commit suicide over their separation, an idea that Wanda Mordenga discredited. I didn't think she would commit suicide, but I was afraid that they would somehow make it look like that. Of course. I mean, this guy, he's one step ahead of everything. hes He doesn't have baloney for a brain, for sure. I mean... He's smart enough to be like, hey, you know, she was depressed about the divorce. Uh, I, I definitely uh, th think that she might have tried to kill herself. And the actor they, uh, they chose to play this role, pitch perfect. Like, he really did capture the smarmy uh, asshole uh, that this character is, that Joe Maloney is, uh, did a great job. June never regained consciousness and died on June 5, 1967. Her autopsy revealed that she had ingested a lethal dose of the same type of chemical that Joe had taken from Neil's lab. Four hours after his wife's death, Joe Maloney was arrested and charged with first-degree murder. Maloney asked to be committed to the Rochester State Mental Hospital for psychiatric evaluation. The court granted his request. What the judge didn't know was that Maloney had once worked at the hospital and was familiar with the layout. Less than two weeks after being admitted, Maloney escaped and disappeared. How did you not know that? Was there not, was there not any way to do cross-references or double-checking or making sure that you don't send a guy who had worked at the hospital to that hospital? I don't know. I mean, can't do a background check. I guess it didn't, it, it didn't come to the judge's mind. And speaking of the hospital, this is what I'm talking about, what I was talking about earlier about a shot straight out of a horror movie. It looks straight out of a horror film. It's at night. You have the hospital is in shadows. It's, it's, it's the shadow of the hospital. It's at night. I mean, I, I swear I expected to see a lightning bolt show up in the background. Like it's just, it was so picture perfect horror. Like, it was such a horror film shot. It looked like something you'd see out of House on a Haunted Hill or some other horror film that dealt with some kind of insane asylum where there's a bunch of crazies running loose or something. Like it's just one of those, like, that had to be intentional. There is no way that this was an unintentional shot to make the uh, institution look as foreboding and as scary as possible. So... Five years later, more than 3,000 miles away in Dublin, Ireland, authorities were called to investigate a burglary at the home of Mr. Michael O'Shea. Monroe County, New York District Attorney's Officer Wendy Evans Lemon is quoted. The police apparently already knew Michael O'Shea. He didn't have any criminal record in Ireland. There was no allegation of criminal wrongdoing on his part, but they were looking for the burglar's prints. All the people who were in the house obviously weren't the burglar, so they wanted to be able to eliminate those prints from the prints taken. O'Shea allowed them to take his fingerprints, and they were promptly sent to Interpol. Michael O'Shea's fingerprints matched Joseph Maloney's, but Maloney couldn't be arrested in Ar because Ireland and the United States had no extradition agreement. Bummer. In 1986, that law was changed. Maloney was finally taken into custody, still denying his true identity. And they show uh, the actor... Uh, in the reenactment and he's in in jail and he's behind bars and he's got this really phony looking disguise he's got this jufro perm he's got this beard that doesn't look 
real at all. It's fake as fuck. And he's also got on like this fake Irish accent. Um, I really hope that the real Joseph Maloney didn't try to uh, hide himself like that because it was blatantly obvious that it, that he was not Irish and he didn't have a beard and he did not have that hairstyle. So he was taken into custody, still denying his true identity. And while in jail, Maloney refused to cooperate with the authorities and did not allow himself to be photographed. Two years after his arrest, the Irish-American extradition treaty was voided because of a legal technicality. Maloney walked out of prison and disappeared, perhaps forever. And that perhaps it seems to be, uh, honestly, uh, pretty damn close to forever. As close as humanly possible, because he's still out there. Still wanted. Today, Joe would be in his early 80s. Uh, while he, uh, when he was last seen, he was six foot, two and a half inches tall with blue eyes, red hair, and a slender build and a scar over his right eyebrow. He is still wanted in the United States because his life sentence still stands and can't be reduced by his imprisonment in Ireland. Authorities believe that he used his contacts with the Irish Repu Republican army to go underground and hide from police due to how much time has passed. The authorities are speculating that he might be dead, but this has yet to be confirmed. I hope he is. And if he is... I feel no shame in saying that I hope he's burning. I hope he's burning in hell. He deserves it. This guy is a real piece of shit. He uh, represents some of the worst that uh, human beings have to offer and the worst of human nature. Um, it's just one of those things that this guy clearly has no soul. He is a prime example of a sociopath because of everything that he does to try to get people to get off his trail, how easily he manipulates things, and just how quickly he goes to poison. Let me poison that dog. No way I won't do it because it's a cop's dog and that'll arouse some suspicion. But I'll poison my wife with ethanol. I'll give her lethal doses of ethanol. Because, fuck her. And I'll do it at, at, at my uh, son's fifth birthday party. It took me this long to finally uh, make a statement on that particular uh, occasion. On that particular uh, choice of a uh, place to start poisoning his wife to death. Uh, but, that's because it's just so absurd. It's astonishing. You're like... This is the audacity of this asshole. He's not only just going to poison his wife to death. He's going to do it at his son's fifth birthday party. Fuck this guy. Um, anyway, I don't know what else to say. Um, this is going to be a shorter episode than a normal because... I don't really have any extra stuff to talk about. Um, there's a few things that I want to save for when Josh comes back. Uh, and there's another case I want to talk about when Josh uh, gets back as well on the podcast. Um, I will mention this. I, I finally got the chance to sit down and watch Netflix's Evil Genius. And uh, that was a very compelling and unforgettable uh, series 
four episodes that are really just mind-blowing in the succession of the events of this robbery and uh, collar bombing and just everything that it entails with it. I don't want to really give it away because I honestly want to talk about it for a future episode of the podcast. It's that juicy. It's got that much meat on the bone. Um, and if you've seen the series, you know exactly what I'm talking about. If you haven't, I highly recommend you seek it out and you watch it. Check out Evil Genius if you haven't already. It's on Netflix. It's a four-part documentary series. It's uh, really well put together, well edited. The direction is great. Uh, 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 the, the wealth of information and research is off the charts. Uh, it, it's got really wonderful production values. Uh, there's even some really nice uh, uh, photography and editing, like editing for sure. Like there's a, there's this particular shot that they show in the beginning of the intro and and at the end of the of the last episode, and it shows this evolution of this woman from a young, charismatic, beautiful woman into this just sour, ugly, just dem- almost demonic, uh, evil woman, and it's just a very amazing uh, bit of, of photo manipulation. It's just really impressive. And yeah, it, it's, it's a show that it's a series that if you do put it on, you better set aside four hours of your day because you're going to want to watch it till the end. You're going to watch one episode and you're going to be hooked because you're going to be like, what's going to happen next? I need to know what happens next. I need to know how this ends. And Uh, That's a testament of a really good show. If you like Making a Murderer, which I would love to talk about uh, that particular case on the podcast sometime as well. That's another really great uh, case. Um, But if you like that particular uh, case or The Keepers or stuff like that, then definitely give Evil Genius a watch. Um, Other than that, I I really don't know what else to say except uh, thank you for listening. Uh, Stay safe. And, um, as always, I'll talk to you later and, uh, see ya.